Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of our Banner Lecture Series at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President of Collections and Exhibitions. So glad you could join us, uh, albeit virtually. I hope that uh, we'll be able to, uh, to do these programs live at the, the VMHC again very soon. Uh, as always, we like to start by thanking you, our members, uh, that make these programs possible. Uh, we could not do this without you, uh, and your participation and support is greatly appreciated. Uh, before I introduce today's speaker, um, I'd like to give you a couple of program updates, uh, things that are coming down the pike uh, in February and in March. Uh, our movie myth busting program uh, will continue on February 15th at 7 p.m. Um, where we will be featuring uh, a discussion of the film Red Tails, the 2012 film, of course, that did, uh, deals with the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, and uh, in addition to our VMHC education team, uh, we'll also uh, be joined by staff from the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of Virginia, who will discuss uh, that film and uh, the Tuskegee Airmen connections to Virginia. Our Virginia Journeys program uh, is back up and running. Uh, our next trip will be on March 16th, where you'll be able to travel with our, our staff to Buckingham and Prince Edward counties to learn about the people and events that contributed to the Brown v. Board of Education uh, decision. And that, of course, was the U.S. Supreme Court case that desegregated public schools in the country. Uh, this trip will include guided tours of the Robert Russell Moton Museum, the Kurdsville Community Center, the Ellis Acres Memorial Park, and Union Grove One Room School. Our next banner lecture uh, will be later this month on February 24th. This will be an evening program, a 6 p.m. program, uh, where Brian Dougherty and Alice Miller will be joining us to talk about their book, uh, a New Era in Building Black Educational Activism in Goochland County, 1911-1932. And on to today's lecture, uh, where we're very happy to have uh, Dr. Bill Blair with us. Uh, after the Civil War, reports surged of violence by Southern whites against Union troops and Black men, women, and children. While some in Washington sought to downplay evidence of atrocities, the Freedmen's Bureau Commissioner, Oliver Howard, requested that commissioners in readmitted states compile reports of murders and outrages to prove that claims of a peaceful South were wrong and to argue in Congress for the necessity of martial law. What followed was one of the most fascinating and least understood fights of the Reconstruction era a political and analytical fight over information and its validity with implications that dealt in life and death. In our lecture today, Dr. William Blair will discuss his most recent book, which chronicles the Bureau's attempt to document and deploy information about the violence that Black communities endured in the wake of emancipation. Dr. William Blair is the Walter L. and Helen P. Ferry Professor Emeritus of Middle American History at Penn State University. He's the author of several books on the Civil War era, including Cities of the Dead, Contesting the Memory of the Civil War Era in the South, With Malice Toward Some, Treason and Loyalty in the Civil War Era, and Virginia's Private War, Feeding Body and Soul in the Confederacy. Bill's a longtime friend of the VMHC, having done research here before. He was also a former fellow here. Uh, and we're very, very happy to have him back. Please welcome Bill Blair. Thank you so much uh, for that wonderful introduction. And yes, I'm, I'm really happy to be reconnected with a institution that I frankly look upon as one of the places that helped launch my career because I did a huge amount of research in your facility for Virginia's private war, my dissertation that became a book, and um, came back as a Mellon Fellow for the second book, uh, Cities of the Dead. And Virginia actually features 
somewhat in this book in that it helped launch this particular project. Uh, I have to go back, oh, probably almost 30 years now when I was doing work on my uh, dissertation and I was in the Alderman Library at the University of Virginia. And as some of you who have cranked microfilm know, you have to get up and take a break now and then. And I did so, and I just started randomly looking through the stacks there, and they had this microfilm for the Freedmen's Bureau. And I plucked this one down. This is the image that I saw when I put it up. And as you can see, it's for Virginia. And the title, as you look down below roll 59, Records Relating to Murders and Outrages. Well, when I saw that, it, it kind of startled me uh, because here was a government entity admitting that there were crimes committed. And yet, I did, and African-Americans obviously were the target since it's coming out of the Freedmen's Bureau. But I didn't know why the reporting existed and if the data actually had any use or whether it just got put into the bottom of an archive uh, somewhere. So over the years, I started to see that historians were familiar uh, with this particular record. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau Online is a resource that I used to use in teaching in my classroom. And there, here again, if you look in the upper left-hand corner, you see that title, Murders and Outrages. And it shows you the states that you can start to visit and find some of this material. Yet, it continued to bug me that neither the historians I saw who used it nor this particular website ever said how the record came into being. So I finally decided to conduct my own detective hunt to try to learn who had called for this reporting on racial violence and why. Well, what I learned, as you heard uh, from the introduction, was that this record came about during a time of a toxic political climate that caused information on racial violence to become politicized with the usual sources, newspapers, letters, and even political speech being condemned and despised by opponents as fictions to mask a political agenda. Um, and, and in fact, fellow Republicans sometimes reached out and bashed uh, the radicals whom they uh, suspected of trying to escalate or exaggerate the violence that was occurring in the South in order to excuse federal intervention that would bring about black suffrage so it could prop up the voting base of these radicals and these Republicans. The New York Times, for example, a Republican leading newspaper on August 3rd, indicted the radicals for fostering anger and estrangement so that they could ride into power on the strength of a pretended sympathy with the Negro. And of course, one of the key figureheads who was always being bashed was Charles Sumner, uh, the abolitionist senator uh, from Massachusetts. Um, he would often talk about violence on the Senate floor and use anonymous accounts from letters. And like journalists today, he was trying to protect identities of sources and protect them from repercussion. But the practice opened him and others to allegations that they forged accounts to justify an unprecedented expansion of federal powers. Well, the dispute over the truth about atrocities led military officers in the Freedmen's Bureau to finally start collecting violence more systematically under the provocative title of what you saw, the records relating to murders and outrages. Uh, by doing that, the creation of this record was a real slap against um, uh, President Johnson and his reconstruction policies. And the desire of these officers to protect civil rights overrode their sense even of constitutional norms. Well, the heroes of these stories are the free people who refused to accept a tended legal system. In the Freedmen's Bureau records, uh, records relating to murders and outrages. And I was trying to find out why and how this record was uh, pulled together. And it turns out that uh, military officers were actually being maybe even insubordinate to the president to pull this together and leak it to Congress and to try to have civil rights 
take precedence even over some of the constitutional norms that they definitely believed in. And the heroes of this story are definitely the freed people because without them flowing to the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, th this information would not have been even available. And in order to give that information, they often had to run the gauntlet of um, angry uh, white folks who did not want them to testify about crimes that were being committed. And there were many of them who were killed to supply such information. So before I go further, I just wanna make sure we know, we all have a common agreement on what the Freedmen's Bureau was. And it's actually a short title for the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen and Abandoned Lands, created in March of 65. Uh, and it was to help with the transition from slavery to freedom. Uh, it put military officers, this is a, a, a sub-department of the War Department, and it put military officers in communities throughout the South, and they had to adjudicate labor contracts. Uh, they built schools, they built hospitals for freed people, and they also, way down on the list at first, were to try to ensure that justice uh, was served. And they even had a freedman's courts that were set up to try to help um, litigate small claims and small cases. Well, to see how this record that I'm talking about finally took shape requires us to go back to a time when there was a real information deficit um, in the country. Um, Northerners were really starved for information about the South. Um, Andrew Johnson, the president of the United States, was no different. Uh, he even complained that he really had not enough information to make uh, decisions about the South. And so in order to get information and what he would hope to be uh, good, clean data that he could use, he decided to send Carl Schurz, this uh, union, former Union general on the right, uh, into the South to, to file a report um, to him personally. Now, Schurz would make a long time trip of covering months and the problem was that Johnson did not realize that Schurz was a radical Republican himself, uh, who was committed to uh, black suffrage and black rights and to a political agenda that Johnson did not actually believe in. And while Schurz was making his uh, trip, he was sneaking letters or leaking letters back to Boston newspapers to, that gave hints about what his final report would look like. Johnson didn't like it. And so he took or tasked Ulysses S. Grant, general in chief, to go in and create his own report that Johnson hoped would uh, counter uh, Schertz's. And in fact, they did. They both gave different um, sides of the story with Grant uh, basically saying that all was well and that things were going along very famously and nicely uh, in the South. But it was Schertz who had his finger on the pulse of the South. And in his report, which actually had more than 100 pages to Congress or to the president, uh, he basically said in certain places, they, the free people, are shot and abused outside the immediate protection of our forces by men who announced their determination to take the law into their own hands in defiance of our authority. It's not the only instance he reported. This one was for South Carolina. But he talked about a woman, for example, who was slain, trying to stop the whipping of her son. And he reported on five freedmen who were murdered uh, in Mississippi. No one said it at the time, but this actually showed the possibilities that the federal government had in being able to gather information on violence. And it was a role that would uh, finally shift over to the Freedmen's Bureau in a very short time. Well, one of my uh, great surprises and delights in this project was how quickly Grant changed. Uh, he recognized that he had made a mistake almost right from the start. He had not been exactly um, sanguine about making this trip, uh, but uh, once he recognized the error of his ways, he actually wanted to try to find out more information for himself. And on December 25th, Christmas Day of 1865, he sent out an order to all of his military departments, and he told them in the South, and he told them to collect all known outrages occurring with your, your command since the surrender of the rebel armies. And uh, remember, outrages is a general term that described, you know, almost anything, uh, assaults, murders, robberies, etc., especially things that were not being prosecuted. At any rate, I highlighted 
this last part of his order, committed by white people against the blacks and the reverse. He wanted to know if black people were assaulting whites, not because he suspected that that was the case, but that was a key, key part of the argument by Democrats and others who were saying that any violence that existed was not because of white people, because black people were causing it. Well, the information that came in uh, showed that to be a lie. Uh, they didn't show a heck of a lot of murders at this time because they were just starting to crank up and trying to figure out how to get their hands on or arms around uh, the data. But um, it became clear that uh, from what they reported that more than 60% of all the violence was instigated by white people and not the reverse. And one of the things that everybody knew at the time was how violence was escalating in certain parts of the South. Uh, these are the most famous. I mean, you cannot read uh, History of Reconstruction without running into these two uh, massacres that occurred. One in Memphis, May 1 through 4 of 1866, and another in New Orleans, July 30th, 1866. And these uh, provoked uh, much controversy in the North and even sparked a government investigation to try to figure out what was going on. But all the Freedmen's Bureau people and all the military officers who were stationed in the South understood that this was just the tip of the iceberg. This was low-hanging fruit. People, meaning newspapers, were in these towns. They, they, were, they were very visible. The urban assaults were captured and talked about and, and widely publicized. What wasn't as well-known, though, and where the Freedmen's Bureau was starting to show it could help, was in reporting on violence that was occurring in the rural areas, places where it would have gone unreported, probably unnoted, and definitely unrecorded. For example, I call it the hidden violence. In March of 1866, in Kentucky and Tennessee, one uh, investigator uh, for the Army basically reported on what was going on at this particular time. This is a very short list of, from one person talking about only a few months of what was happening within his jurisdiction. It came up because uh, legislators were looking to continue, uh, the, uh, continue the Freedmen's Bureau for another year. And they were trying to prove that there was a need uh, for this federal presence uh, in the South. And as you can see here, uh, he was pointing out uh, 23 beatings, four beatings, two robberies, three other robberies, five men shot, so on, so on, so on. You could go down the list. The same agent uh, also reported that um, a bureau agent tried to arrest two men who had robbed a black man, shot him in the head, then raped his wife. But a county judge released the assailants, claiming the bureau had no legal jurisdiction. None of this was uh, unique uh, in any stretch of the imagination. And what really was also uh, added to this cauldron was the fact that uh, Freedmen's Bureau agents themselves and military officers and military personnel were not exempt. They were being shot and killed in places like Grenada, Mississippi. In response, Grant issued General Orders Number 44 on July 6th of 1866, which is a remarkable document. Um, he called on his officers to arrest all charged with the commission of crimes and offenses against officers, agents, citizens, and inhabitants of the United States. That would have been expected and good enough, but where he really went far was this, irrespective of color. So he made this a very sweeping race-neutral uh, order. And again, he's trying to say where civil authorities have failed, neglected, or unable to arrest and bring such parties to trial. Grant, in this order, was committing the Army to actions the president would not. In fact, in April of that year, Johnson had declared uh, the insurrection at an end in all places except Texas, and that meant, in his view, that civil authority had been reconstituted and that the military should be standing down from intervening in uh, local law and order. Consequently, Grant's order contradicted the stance of his commander-in-chief. 
Well, despite the increasing evidence of atrocities committed against uh, freed people, it did not stop the naysayers from dismissing reports of violence. I'm going to back up a second. Um, it did not stop the naysayers from uh, dismissing these reports. Democrats and even some Republicans, and I'll have a slide later to show you some of the Republican response, discredited that freed people and loyalists were un under consistent vicious assault without recourse uh, to the law. Well, as this continued, a significant step came in September of 1864 when Oliver Ordis Howard, the commissioner in charge of the Freedmen's Bureau, basically had had enough. Um, he kept trying to figure out how to answer the charges that military personnel were making up uh, these stories. So he finally issued an order to this Freedmen's Bureau personnel that they should report, quote, the number of murders that have occurred in your district where freedmen have been the victims or parties according to the official record. That's important, the official record. He was trying not to just have hearsay. He was trying to see what cases were documented. The object is to test the truth of statements that have been publicly made touching in this matter and to enable General Howard to give the facts. And you can see again, the debate is, is over the veracity of information and how do we prove what is happening is happening. Well, then came a time in January of 1867 when the Senate sent a resolution to the president demanding him to report on his enforcement of the Civil Rights Act. It had been passed in the spring of 1866 and Congress suspected that nothing was happening, that there was no enforcement that was being conducted by the president. Congress at the time was debating the Military Reconstruction Act. And it's important for us to make sure we have the background on this because Congress wanted information on, uh, hard and fast information on violence so they, they could take some pretty remarkable steps, not only for that time, but for any time in US history. The Military Reconstruction Act that was under consideration in January of 1867, and that actually would become law, but I get ahead of myself, but it would actually become law, would suspend civil governments in the former Confederate states in all places except Tennessee. That meant all the legislatures were going to be negated. It would establish five districts. You can see how it was parceled up. Virginia was going to be District 1, and then they would pair most of the rest of the states uh, for other districts. But the, the five districts would be ruled by military officers, generals. These military officers and the Freedmen's Bureau would register black voters, black voters who weren't allowed to vote in the North, by the way, and create new constitutions with black suffrage and demand that these states have ratification of the 14th Amendment before they could come back and be recognized as fully restored. Pretty severe measures, uh, justifiable, frankly, because of the violence that was occurring. But that was one of the reasons why they wanted to have as much documentation as possible. So they gathered this data and they started to leak it um, to the government. Stanton, the, the uh, Secretary of War, contradicted the um, orders that came out from his own president that basically said that things were fine in the South and there was no need to do anything. Well, in a cabinet meeting in February of 1867, Stanton casually dropped a bomb. He revealed that he had a report from Howard and Grant that detailed more than 400 instances of violence. And he supported disseminating the information. He thought it should be spread around and publicized. And then he added that if others wish to suppress it, well, they could certainly try, quote, but there was little doubt that members of Congress had seen this, likely had copies, unquote. In other words, the report had been leaked. Grant had asked Howard to compile a list. He had cooperated fully uh, in this. And he asked Howard to compile a list of murders and other violence upon freed people or union men in the southern states for the prior six months or year. And he was crystal clear about why he wanted this to happen. He stated unequivocally that he wanted to make a report that showed that the courts in the rebel states were not 
um, applying the law equally, that there was no security to life or property of the people who were referred to, and that he recommended that martial law be declared. That is what I meant by saying that concern over civil rights overrode the norms of chains of command that were in the Constitution. And the material was put to quick use. Senator Henry Wilson, who was a radical uh, Republican from Massachusetts, stood up on the Senate floor in February 19th and basically gave this report of what he found. He, they, he pulled out a little vest pocket book in which he had written down most of this information. As you can see, those of you in Virginia, you can see that he told that there were 18 murders, which doesn't sound like a lot, except uh, if you can see, and you probably can't see down here, but if you go into the second paragraph further by midway, you'll see from April to December in Virginia, 18 murders and 165 burglaries, but that's in one county alone. So it was not by any means a complete picture. And that was the case with all of these, even though there were lots of outrages and murders being uh, committed. Um, Wilson also mentioned, of course, Georgia, Mississippi, and Texas. Texas was very prominent, as you will hear later, uh, for this kind of outrages. Despite this, even with good documentation, even with military officers supplying names, places where people were being uh, killed or assaulted, or robbed or whatever, even though they had places, dates, names, and so on, there were still people who refused uh, to believe that this was the case. And what's even more startling is that this wasn't just coming from Southerners. Remember at this time, Southern states had not been reorganized or allowed back in, um, that those who had reorganized under Johnson's uh, administration have been denied seating, meaning all the representatives from Southern states were not even in the Senate or the Congress at this time. So the pushback was coming even from other Republicans. Here are two of them. One of them is James R. Doolittle, a Senator from Wisconsin. Uh, and the main uh, fellow who opposed the information was Edgar Cowan from my own state of Pennsylvania. And again, both of them are Republicans and they're basically, as you can see, ridiculing and saying that the information is tainted and false. Doolittle thought it was the work of military officers who had ambitions to exert greater control over the South, and that's why they falsified these claims. Cowan, of course, just ridiculed um, Wilson, saying that he had a catalog of cases that would have sunk Sodom and Gomorrah. At any rate, despite this, Military Act was eventually passed, although it had to be passed over the president's uh, veto. And the record of murders and outrages was changing the way that white and black activists presented information on violence. No longer did they use anonymous accounts or rely primarily on the partisan press. They were deploying eyewitness testimony collected by union officers on the ground with very detailed uh, statements about what was going on. And they were doing so so that they could interdict themselves or intervene in the South uh, according to the Constitution, saying that uh, under Article 4, Section 4, the United States has the mission to guarantee a Republican form of government. By that, they didn't mean the Republican Party. They meant re representative government for all of the people that applied the laws equally. Well, that's how the, it started to come into being, and it would have a life even beyond 1867, as it would start to expose the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, and it would show why there was some bad election tampering going on in various parts of the South. But what I'd like to do right now is give you a sense of what is in the record, at least a little bit of an encapsulation. And this is an excerpted um, table that appears um, in the book, although I've condensed it uh, somewhat. This took over a year or more to put together, calling from the Freedmen's Bureau reports with the help of two undergraduates and a couple of graduate students uh, to make all of our tabulations. And as you can see, that over the course of three plus years, uh, the Freedmen's Bureau uh, put together incident reports amounting to 3,981 
reports. Now, that's not individual cases. That's an incident report. And one report could involve three, four, five crimes, even more. As you'll hear later, one incident report in Louisiana involved almost 200 people. And as you can see from here, uh, if you look, you'll see that uh, the worst cases were, or the most frequent cases were coming from the deeper south, um, specifically Georgia, Louisiana, and then as you look, you can see Texas. Texas by far had the most mind-boggling numbers of reports, 2,288 which represents about 57% of all the known cases that the Freedmen's Bureau was pulling together. You'll see that murders at 1,634 uh, were less frequent than physical assaults at 2,488, yet the murders, of course, were uh, high. Uh, Texas had 859 that the Freedmen's Bureau collected. And frankly, what we have to remember is that this is underreported for sure, because of intimidation, many of the Freedmen's Bureau people felt that they only got half of the cases that may have been committed. And as you can see down below on the last line, as far as convictions were concerned, 96 out of that total. There was no justice uh, happening uh, for free people uh, in the South. For those who study the era, era uh, Tennessee may strike you as kind of an anomaly. If you look at Tennessee, it has 65 or the least number of incident reports. And how does that jive with Tennessee being also the birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan? Well, the answer to that conundrum was uh, the contradiction. The, uh, two things, uh, mostly the one that Tennessee was not actually going through reconstruction. By 1866, it had been recognized as reconstructed, and consequently, the Freedmen's Bureau was not keeping records there uh, for murders and outrages. It didn't start until 1868 when it had to start putting this stuff together. What exists uh, came from military departments, which was a different part of the bureaucracy, and they never combined themselves. If you put both parts together, military departments and the Freedmen's Bureau, that would make Tennessee pretty much on par with Georgia uh, for the number of murders. Although the remainder of the states fell lower in reports of violence, uh, this does not suggest a peaceful accommodation to racial adjustment. Most likely there are peculiarities in the data collection uh, that account for the anomalies. Uh, Virginia, for example, contained former Whigs who avoided the imposition of radical reconstruction by agreeing to black suffrage so that white leaders could maintain home, home rule. They hoped to project an aura of peace. Now, by the way, I should say here, I'm just supposing all this. I really don't quite have a great answer for you for why Virginia was lower than some of the other states. And maybe even in the Q&A, uh, some of you could suggest uh, some answers for me. But it, there was violence that did explode in Virginia, uh, with the Freedmen's Bureau reporting, for example, black churches being burned in Petersburg in 1866, and terrorists burned houses, school buildings, and churches at Hampton. Well, for those, those of you who are very perceptive will note that not all of the Confederate states are up here. Um, the record contains a mystery in that information from three states Arkansas, Florida, and Mississippi was never integrated into the reporting under murders and outrages. I actually exchanged uh, notes with an archivist at the National Archives who also had no real explanation. He supposed uh, that the sheer size of the Freedmen's Bureau records at more than 1,000 cubic feet would make it likely that similar records may exist apart uh, from the main report. And he, he's right about that. You can find reports of violence, especially about Mississippi uh, during this time period in the Freedmen's Bureau. Most importantly, again, it also means, unlike what the critics claimed at the time, instead of exaggerating the frequency of, of atrocities, the Bureau most certainly underreported incidents. Most officers believe, again, they only captured half. And if you take away the, or if you 
consider the fact that the incident reports have multiple people in them. We're looking at even this data at roughly about 5,000 uh, people who are either being murdered, assaulted, or victims of other kinds of crimes. Well, several things struck me when going through the material. Uh, first off, even though I've been doing this for about 30 years and very well aware of the violence from the work of many good historians, what I encountered still stunned me. Um, there were moments when I felt like I was reading reports of terrorism committed by ISIS in the Mideast. I will just say that there were even decapitations of white and black women and just leave it at that. There were days when I did have to walk away from the computer. Well, second, I was surprised, although I shouldn't have been, by how often women became uh, targets of violence. Although they comprised only 15% of the overall incident reports in about a handful of the states, they constituted about a third of the action. And again, this was certainly underreported for all the reasons that crimes against women typically get overshadowed. Well, I expected the sexual assaults uh, that would occur and especially attempts to pin down labor through violence, as well as just plain meanness on the part of former slave owners. But I had not anticipated how freedom presented sometimes tragic circumstances for tearing apart and reconstituting families. As I went through the records, it became clear that an unknown number of conflicts involved former masters trying to keep mixed race children that they had fathered with enslaved women, either through rape or sexual intimidation or whatever you want to call the relationship. And to show you, it should have not been such a surprise to me. If we go back, um, sorry about the S being pulled over there. Um, in 1850, and then again in 1860, but in 1850, the United States Census began keeping track of mixed race uh, people when they called mulattoes. Um, and I tried to show you what uh, existed within Richmond as a city and then a state overall. But if you look at the enslaved um, column, you'll see that in Richmond, 21% of the enslaved were considered mixed race. The state overall, 17%. As you look over to the last total, you see that at least, well, about one out of every five of all black people, but especially one out of every five of the enslaved were mixed race. What that meant, and I had never considered it before, is that when freedom came, it also meant a fight over children and a fight over what constituted a household. The struggles for black people to build families in the new era of freedom involved incredible frustration, with many of them losing their children through what were called apprentice laws that many of the states enacted. And when it came to women's activism, Virginia also featured an intriguing foreshadowing of the modern civil rights movement, an antecedent to Rosa Parks. On February 1, 1868, near Gordonsville, a railroad conductor had evicted three black women from the train. The Freedmen's Bureau noted that they wished to file suit in U.S. District Court to take advantage of the Civil Rights Act. Legal papers had been filed and they were forwarded to the U.S. District Attorney. I have yet to find a resolution of the case or what happened. I suspect it was just bounced. Um, but this showed women immediately seizing upon new legal mechanisms to push the boundaries of freedom. Echoing what was done actually in San Francisco in 1863 by women there who used similar techniques to provoke legal challenges to discrimination on streetcars. Well, the last surprise to me came in the recognition of massacres that you can find in the record. And this particular massacre was known to progressive era historians back in the late 19th and early 20th century, but then fell out of the record of um, the general studies of reconstruction. Louisiana historians know about this, so I'm not the first to discover it, but many of my colleagues, in fact, most of them, those who even study reconstruction, did not know about this particular massacre. And 
Neither have been the public presses, the national media that has been reporting on massacres recently. This still is not um, noticed. But this is how I encountered it through this particular report in the Freeman's Bureau. And this is called Bozier. That's how it's pronounced, Parish in Louisiana. And you could see that this officer found it, heard that fully 100 freemen and women were being executed. And there was in one particular instance where nine freedmen were taken to the bank of the Red River. They were told to swim for their lives. And when they came up, they were shot and killed. And then this one really got to me. Three freedmen, while engaged making a coffin for one of their friends, was they were brutally murdered. Um, how this happened, and here's a map that shows you where Bozier and the other parish that was really instrumental in this was Cato, too, next door. This is up in northwest Louisiana. And this is going to be this area along the Red River Basin, especially and extending into East Texas, would have been one of the worst places in the world for you to be if you were an African-American. Um, this started in the fall of 1868. And what happened was that a white trader uh, who was uh, going home to Arkansas stopped in Bossier or Shady Grove Plantation, when he discerned that a black man would vote for Grant in the coming election, he leveled a weapon and fired. He missed the guy, but black men then came and bound him up, leaving him unharmed, but the news spread, as well as rumors that two white men had been killed. By the next morning, white people seeking vengeance escalated the violence to unimaginable proportions. White vigilantes streamed into Shady Grove to fire indiscriminately on freed people. They immediately shot down eight men and two women. The two women were killed for pleading for the lives of their husbands. Raiders took seven men to a neighboring, neighboring place, killed six. When they learned that the seventh one was still alive, they went back, finished the job, and then they killed his wife too. White assailants came upon a black man who refused to doff his hat. They put a chain around his neck, cut his throat, and hanged him from a tree where he stayed for three days. Mass executions were common, like the kind at the Red River. One historian has documented 185 deaths in these two parishes. This is happening over the course of about a two to three week period. But government records suggest as many as 200 or more have been slain. Uh, the killing fields of 1868 showed the rest of the South the effectiveness of political terrorism. Murders and other intimidation limited Bossier and Cato parishes, both of which had a total of 4,530 registered Republicans, only two voted in the election. 4,530 registered, two voted. And this tragic episode might have been even lost to history were it not for the Freedmen's Bureau officers and the freed people who risked their lives to bear witness to the atrocities. Well, the story behind this record unfortunately also exposes how difficult it has been to overcome white disbelief of the scope of racist violence, not just then, but for at least another century. Even then, I was very well aware of the racism of my own historical profession for many years. It was still depressing to me to see how long the white historical establishment denied this part of our past. One of the famous uh, historians from the late 19th century, James Ford Rhodes, um, and he was not alone, basically repeated the democratic allegations. The subject was approached by the radicals with the desire to find facts, to bolster up the policy which they had determined on, rather than to get at the exact truth. Naturally, he said, the trouble was exaggerated. And again, he was not alone. Uh, the historical community really was on board with denying the validity of these records until really the 1960s. In about 1963, if I'm remembering correctly, John A. Carpenter, a historian, he excoriated the profession for discounting the violence. And by the 1970s, the tide had turned 
with white mainstream scholarship. And today, virtually every uh, study of Reconstruction uses the Freedmen's Bureau records, often consulting the record of murders and outrages without knowing really uh, what, had, what the origins uh, behind these records were. I think I'm right in asserting that Americans today remain unaware of this story. And yet I think it's important to grasp this bigger picture for the atrocities back then validated the necessity for the government intervention at the time. And violence dictated the course of reunion and factored into the amending of our own constitution through the creation of the 14th Amendment and the protection of voting rights in the 15th Amendment. Although these efforts fell short and did not prevent the coming of segregation and disfranchisement, there is still a hopeful note, I think, uh, within this story. One of the first steps toward reconciling wrongs in the past is recovering personal stories and trying to account for the dead. Reconstruction-era Democrats and progressive-era historians scoffed at the accounts produced by the Freedmen's Bureau when documenting racial injustice. But today, records that reveal murders and outrages offer the possibility of confronting a past that otherwise may have been lost. And the bravery of free people who risk their lives to provide such an accounting put on record material that allows us to discredit the denial of these atrocities. A historian, a fellow historian, Kadana Williams, has said that black activists pushed their way into the dominant public sphere, creating an alternative discourse to white supremacy through things like this and through using records such as this. This did not offer justice to the victims, but has made it possible to acknowledge a record of wrongdoing which is necessary to take just one of the many, many first steps that we need uh, to keep going on the road toward reconciliation. I want to thank you uh, for your time and thank you for your patience through some technical difficulties. And if there are any questions, I'd be happy to. Thanks, Bill. Uh, truly fascinating. I mean, I think most people would be very surprised at, uh, you know, just how violent an environment uh, reconstruction was in the in the South, and this really does bring this to to the fore. Uh, a number of people are interested in learning more about how they might be able to access some of the records. Can you can you expand on that? Uh, if they want to. They can actually go to that website. It's called the Freedmen Bureau Online. That's all you need to Google the Freedmen's Bureau Online. It'll pop up. And you could click all the links and go to the records of murders and outrages. And you'll be able to uh, start looking at some of the information. They don't have the complete accounting, but I bet it's at least 60% and maybe even a little more of the records that exist within the National Archives. Very accessible because it's all TypeScript. It's not the original manuscript. Um, and I've used this actually with uh, school teachers and even my own students. Uh, I've had them go in and explore the records, and they all come out with the same conclusion that you just had, which is, I did not know how violent it was. So, obviously, this was a surprise when you initially stumbled upon this and that led you down this journey to, to expand on it into a book. Uh, what specifically do you think was the most surprising aspect of this, this research for you? Well, I think the twofold one were one grant. I didn't, you know, I we knew about him in 1870s becoming as president, a real main force behind uh, getting rid of the Klan. But I did not really appreciate how early Grant was on board with um, trying to right civil rights wrongs. And then secondly, just the massacres. I mean, the Bossier Parish massacre was has stuck with me all throughout this project as have some of the other atrocities that I've seen. Are you planning to expand on this research or do you know of other scholars that are planning to expand on this research since it is something that the, the public generally does not know much about? I'd say the only the step that I would like to take next, and I'm not quite sure how to pull it off because I'm a little bit of an old fogey. I'm not quite up on digital history. 
But I think this project would make a natural for digital history, for trying to uh, plot the areas of violence and where they occurred. Because they're organized, the records are by county, pretty much, meaning they did almost always note the county in which the atrocity was committed. So there is the possibility of showing the violence uh, over time. And it's important to think about that because not every area uh, has violence uniformly. In other words, there are always, even in the worst of places, peaks and flows and ebbs and flows. And it's almost always tied to uh, political mobilization or other factors that are going on in communities at that time. So if you did that, you could start to see the flashpoints within different communities within the South and what caused uh, flare-ups of violence. And in what way do you think Virginia might have been unique in this particular environment? You know, uh, I'm still trying to figure Virginia out. Um, I can't honestly decide whether it's, you know, just the commitment of the Freedmen's Bureau agents to take this information, whether it's, because uh, even going into the records, and even if you go onto the website uh, that exists, you will see that the notations are different for Virginia. Far more paragraph form, far more testimony. And so I'm just not sure um, how consistent people were in trying to um, get this information. That said, I do know that Virginia was also under the eye of the North very closely just because of, you know, the sensitivity of Richmond, the Confederate capital. There were military people who were in the state, and I wouldn't doubt that there was just a little sensitivity on part of political figures like the Whigs. Virginia was still a, a pretty much a two-party system, even when the Civil War came, unlike some parts of the Deep South. And that Whig influence uh, was kind of strong in politics. So I suspect that did have some kind of influence on not letting the violence get maybe out of, as much out of hand as some of the other states. I'm making this up. I admit that. I would love to hear if there are other theories. No, it could be a fascinating uh, discussion for, uh, for another lecture. Um, and what's next for you in terms of your research? Well, I'm working right now on something that may take, well, will take me your way, in fact. I'm looking at and dealing with a 100-year history of Black life at Arlington, what became Arlington National Cemetery. Looking at the time from the rise of it as a plantation in the early 1800s to the disbandment of the Freedmen's Bureau village there in, uh, in 1900. Um, it's a fascinating place with tremendous stories and uh, again, I'm just trying to figure out how can I uh, get at the heart of Black uh, life there through that 100 years. Well, it sounds like a fascinating topic, and we'll look forward to seeing the, the fruits of that labor. Bill Blair, thank you so much for joining us. Um, again, folks, we do appreciate uh, your patience today uh, with our technical difficulties and hope that we'll have an opportunity to, uh, to see you all in person. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you uh, later this month uh, for our next banner lecture. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, have a great afternoon and please be safe. Bye-bye.